Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have another amazing episode, and it is truly a golden episode. New friend to the show, Bevy Smith, quintessential Harlem girl, lifelong New Yorker, and Grazie Award winner. Bevy Smith is the host of Sirius XM's Bevelations on Radio Andy. Once wildly successful, luxurious fashion publishing exec, Bevy shifted her professional goals over a decade ago to pursue a life in front of the camera. A pop culture aficionado and fashion expert, Bevy served as moderator of Bravo TV's Revolutionary Fashion Queens and was a former co-host on the nationally syndicated Page Six TV. Her memoir, Bevelations, Lessons from a Mother, Auntie, Bestie, is available where books are sold. I've got mine. And welcome back, Joyelle Nicole Johnson. Joyelle made her network debut on Late Night with Seth Meyers, wrote for the final season of Broad City, and has performed on Comedy Central's digital series, Comics to Watch. She combines her dream of comedy and activism by touring with The Daily Show creator Liz Winstead's Lady Parts Justice League. Her comedy special, Lovejoy, on Peacock, was nominated for the Critics' Choice Award Best Comedy Special. So make sure you check out Lovejoy on Peacock. And welcome back, Zainab Johnson. In 2019, Zainab was named one of Variety's top 10 comics to watch. Zainab made her first late-night stand-up appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. She appeared on HBO's All Deaf Comedy, host at Netflix's 100 Humans, and you can catch her now as Alicia on the Amazon Prime comedy series Upload. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeus podcast and twitter is friends like us 10 become more than a friend leave us a tip donation by going to our patreon page go to patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops all available just go to marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick and my wacky friend dave Cheskow. we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows and with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands Wear a mask still if you want to. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. Uh, we have a new friend and we have returning friends. Uh, Zainab Johnson is back. Thank you. Welcome, Zainab. Thank you for having me back. Oh, you're welcome. Currently on the new se- second season of Upload on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, and Joyelle Johnson is also returning, receiving a Critics Award nomination for her special. Got them Johnson girls in the building. Oh, my goodness. And our new friend, it is such an honor to have you here, Bevy Smith, everyone. Bevy Bevy Smith. 
Harlem swag. Be here. Fashion knowledge, love for hip hop, video vixen body. <laughs> <laughs> and you've lived in Harlem, Harlem, like forever. Like, and I was just telling you before we started that I've lived in Harlem for 20 years. Yes. And that's very impressive because, you. you know, 20 years ago, if you moved to New York and you were black, you headed to Brooklyn. Fort Greene was so rich culturally, and a lot of people didn't know how rich, excuse me, how culturally rich Harlem still was and still is. Um, but so I'm surprised that we got you, but I'm happy we have you. So well, I loved Harlem from the moment I read Billie Holiday's book. Yes. Um, and everything that, you know, I you know, I was a true poet mm-hmm. in my young age, and Langston, everything I knew about yeah. poetry and art. Harlem really spoke to me. Yeah. Plus, it was the only place that I could get an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so I and my brother helped me out. And then I got this apartment. And I was going to ask you this. How have you seen, like, what is Harlem today compared to what it was before to you? Well, I mean, the great thing about Harlem is it's um, is that because we are a neighborhood. So just for all the listeners who are out there listening and, and may not really understand Harlem versus Brooklyn. So there really is no such thing as a Harlem versus Brooklyn conversation because Harlem is a neighborhood mm-hmm. in the borough of Manhattan and Brooklyn is, is its whole entire borough. So if you want to compare Fort Greene to Harlem, you can, or Bed-Stuy to Harlem, you can, but you can't compare Harlem to Brooklyn. So I just want to get that out the way. And so because we are this neighborhood, we've always never, ever lost our sense of community. Um, And um, I think that that's one thing that we have retained, even with the gentrification that's going on all around us, we still are a community. And, you know, we get people coming Black people, I see a lot of more upwardly mobile Black people coming into Harlem, which makes me very excited. Um, Because as long as we continue to have a dominant Black voice in our community, which I think, Marina, you would agree we still have, we have still retained that, then we're good to go. Um, And so no matter how many Whole Foods they want to put up, how many luxury condominiums they want to put up, it still feels very Black on these streets. Now, if you come and visit and you go to, you know, from 125th and below and you're on, you know, Frederick Douglass Boulevard, you're on Malcolm X Boulevard, you might be like, oh, my God, Harlem is so gentrified. Child, come up in them blocks. Come up and through them blocks. (laughs) Don't stay on the avenue. Come up and through them blocks. And then you'll see how black Harlem still is. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And Zainab grew up in Harlem, right? Oh, so you okay? You're like me. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Harlem. They don't even call where I grew up. They don't even call Harlem no more. They call it like Upper Manhattan. I grew up on 113th and 7th, and that's how I know if people how long you've been. And if you're like, where's Adam Clayton Powell? I'm like, oh, they just got here. <laughs> you know. But I do remember the change because when I moved to Harlem, I moved when I was like five years old. So that was like the very last 80s, the early 90s, you know. Um, and I remember crack bows being in the street. I remember so many like in, like abandoned lots. I remember my, my father actually bought, uh, before we got to Harlem, my father bought um, one of those brownstones when Mayor Dinkins, when we mm-hmm. had our first and only black, well, now we have a black mayor, right? Well, do we? Um, 
Ooh. Well, there you go. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> you know, but 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 Beth, I'm sure you remember when Mayor Din- former Mayor Dinkins was selling the brownstones for one dollar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, and my and my father ventured into into that. But what I was gonna say is this is what I love about Harlem, actually, because I get that same conversation, Bevy. Like people think that Harlem is a, is its own city, right? right? But I think that speaks to how powerful it's been over decades. Because yeah, yeah it it does stand out on its own like no other neighborhood in Manhattan, you mm-hmm. know, that people really think. I hear people talk about Harlem more than they even talk about Staten Island, which is its own oh, yeah. actual borough, you right. know? So, yeah, I, I mean, I love Harlem, but you are absolutely right. There's certain blocks that you go to and it feels very mixed and diverse and you feel like, oh my God, you know, are things changing? Because you do see white businesses. That's the, yes. like, you can't always see the residences, but you can yeah. see the people who are operating the businesses. But then you get up to, like, we have a, a, a friend, the comedians on the podcast, Yamanika, who also lives in Harlem. Oh, yeah, I love Yamanika. The streets because she will flip on me uh, right. if I tell people where she lives. Um, but sometimes when I go up there, it's like it doesn't look like a change no. at all. And it's no. because the, the businesses haven't really ch- yeah. changed, which for me is like an upside and a downside. It's the upside because you want to keep seeing black businesses in a black mm-hmm. neighborhood, yep. you know. But then the downside is you also want to see growth in a neighborhood. You want to see improvement in a neighborhood, you know. But then that that speaks to them needing to get make sure that we get more small business loans. Um, we need more incubators. We need that. Like, you know, I feel like I, I don't want to get too political about it, but I feel like, you know, a lot of the politicians who greenlit all of these um, empowerment zones and all this in the community didn't do a good enough job at making sure that there were policies in place where if you were coming in Whole Foods and building a mammoth store what are you doing for the small businesses mm-hmm. around? Like, you know, is there a collaborative spirit? You know what I mean? So I'm, a, you know, I'm a part of um, Market Samuelson's Harlem Meetup, which is something we do in the springtime, which is a, a food festival in Harlem. It's two days. It's incredible. And I love doing that kind of thing where he in, involves all the black, you know, restaurants, you know, and nice. um, that's so important. Mm-hmm. It's so important for the, it- the culture. It is. And it's also important to make sure some of these businesses are claiming to be black owned and aren't. And I've been on I've been on that like in Harlem. I I go on. I've become really involved in the past year since the pandemic because I was I stayed. I didn't leave. And Mm -hmm. so I was starting to see some of the problems. There's a restaurant beneath me that I'm. I'm having a little bit of a war with you probably. Oh, yeah, I know it. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they say they're black owned, but they're not. They're not. No. It doesn't feel black owned. It's not. That's why. They they have a a black partner, sort of. And -hmm. that is the thing that um, I've actually been in contact with the community board and with Kristen for Harlem, who I love because she's Mm -hmm. always on this task force about, you know, keeping Harlem black. And you know, one of the things is, is like when they say they're black owned, what does that mean? Like, who yeah. do they have? You know, you can't just have one person as the front person and then claim to be black owned. Yeah. And then they, they get listed in these um, 
directories as being black owned. Mm-hmm. It sucks too because it's like a catch twenty two because sometimes the way in for a black chef or black is going through a business loan with a white partner because yeah. they're not giving. Them. It's like it's it, it really sucks. So there's two shows actually right now. I'm not sure. And it, great, Marina, maybe you can have them on as guests for, for this podcast. Amazon does a show called um, Harlem right now, which I'm in. As yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> So, Wait, uh, I'm, so I'm Zainab, early. Sorry. Zainab, it's so crazy that you said that because you know my role in it is I'm Ian's aunt. Mm-hmm. Ian is Megan Good's ex-boyfriend. And he's, he's the, chef. the chef who is opening up a kind of Parisian inspired restaurant in Harlem that used to be an old soul food spot. And I'm the auntie that's raging against him saying, how could you sell us out? You're a horrible person, Ian. And, you know, yeah. So when you said that, I was like, that sounds like the plot of Harlem. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's so great that I get to be a part of a show that's actually really speaking to the real issues that are going on right now in Harlem. Yes, yes, because it's very, it's very serious, and I, I've, I've just been very passionate about it. And I, I told like uh, the head of the community board, and he's a really great guy, um, Mar- Marquise. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't mind these new businesses if they're white biz- owned businesses, but be good neighbors. Uh-huh. Just that be good one. neighbors. Mm-hmm. That one. I always say, like, if you if. You are, I feel like there are a few that do a really good job at that. I think Babalucci does a great job at really being a part of the community. Um, I feel like um, Barwine does a great job at being a part of the community. You know, like we need to like start highlighting those places. Like, because for me, I'm, I, I frequent restaurants downtown all the time. So when I'm in Harlem, I really do try to, um, patronize black restaurants. And if I can't patronize a black restaurant, because maybe if, if, if I'm on a, a particular kind of cuisine or what have you, then I'm going to definitely go to the ones that are really friendly. If I go to a spot and it's a, a almost predominantly white like space environment being music, the customers, the wait staff, the bartender, the host, I'm not going. Because right. I know you're not for the community. That's right. What's your favorite restaurant in Harlem? Oh, child. Well, you know, I have so many for di- many different things. So I have a couple of home restaurants. My home is Melba's. Yeah. yeah. Um, my home I is Red Rooster. Those are places, and Sylvia's. Those are places I could run up in at any time and be like, and, and also Babalucci. They treat me really good, too. I could run up in those places at any time and be like, I have a take. I need a table of 45 <laughs> and, you can, and, and they're coming in five minutes and they will accommodate me. Um, and also too, it's just like, again, I like places where you go in and they treat you like community mm-hmm. and like family. They work with you. If you come in there enough times, cause this has nothing to do with me being Bevy Smith TV and radio personality. This has everything to do with the spirit of a place. And I think that, you know, we need to start spending our dollars in that way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to have to curry favor to get into a restaurant. Like, I don't want to have to, you know, splash a whole bunch of credentials. You know what I mean? I do that enough downtown where, you know, in order to get into, 
you know, a place like Pastiche, you need to be on a VIP list or you can't get in unless you, you know, have a reservation three weeks out. I played that game already. When I'm home, I just want to be home. Right. <laughs> can, I just come in and, can I just come in and get a play, boo? And, Mel- and Melba is that person from the very beginning of when it opened. I remember yes. her personality. She is such she is a bestie. Like yeah. you, you meet her and she is warm and open. She has no ego. I saw her at the at the uh, farmer's market like three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And she I just told her, I said, I just love everything about you. And she's so warm and friendly. And she gave me her number. I was like, oh, my God, I don't you know, I will text you. I will. I've, I want to text her all the time. But right. yes, it's it's just and the restaurant has all of that. You can see yeah. she is managing her store with, her, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, it's open to everyone, but she definitely wants to make sure it feels like home. And, um, you know, I, I, I always tell people like, you know, even when markets opened the Red Booster, I mean, the bar was always a gathering spot, a meeting place for Black folks. And when he used to do the live music on Mondays and on, you know, Mondays was Raheem Walker Project. And then Tuesdays was Salsa Music. And then Sundays was Gospel Brunch. And I love that he used to always, there was this one Black man, like an old-timey, old-school bar fly. So a bar <laughs> fly is somebody who's just sit up at the bar like a fly. And, you know, they would nurse the drink. And then the, a lot of these new places, they don't allow that. Mm-mm. But Marcus would would not only allow that he would greet that man and when he passed away they put a little plaque there for when Aww. where he used to sit we that's that's old school harlem you know what i mean yes yes that's important and that's why i put this i'll, I'll go to this article and then we're going to get to your memoir <laughs> um but that's why i put this article in here about a landlord underestimated his tenants and now they own the building on a yeah. sunny afternoon in the spring of 2017. It is in the Bronx. A dozen mm-hmm. tenants from small Bronx apartment building met at trendy Port Morris neighborhood bar with exposed brick walls, craft beer and funky cocktails. <laughs> One of the tenants had slipped flyers under her neighbor's doors a few days earlier, calling for the weekend meeting. They tried to figure out how to deal with the new landlord who'd come in with big plans to raise rents after buying the building for $4 million. A mm-hmm. nonprofit organization paid the landlord $2.6 million for the property in February and plans to eventually hand it over to the tenants who will be able to buy their apartments for $2,500. Yep. So, $2,500 a month? You no, know, to buy their apartment for that. That's They just bought it. Amazing. Yeah, I, I my um, uh, I I don't know if I told you this before, Marina, but when I moved to Harlem, we moved in. My father worked for the MTA. Okay. Um, and then we moved into like a like a I would call it a tenement building. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know who owned it. Yeah. Um, but I know it was like the elevator didn't work at for, you know, we only had six levels, but the elevator didn't work and there were, you know, some vacant apartments, but maybe after us being there for maybe three or four years, my father started doing the work to convert it from like a tenement building, I guess, to a co-op. Co-op. Yep. 
Yeah, and they he got a co-op. He created a co-op association. We bought our apartment. So in the early 2000s, my parents sold, you know, as Harlem started changing, my parents sold, like they may have bought the apartment for $30,000 and sold the apartment for, yeah, however much you think apartments go, five-bedroom yeah. apartments go for in Harlem. Right. Um, yeah, a huge one, but, right? Yeah, but he, but, but, but that's what they did. Like I watched them do it. And I, and I mean, that let me know that like a lot was possible, you know, like I have no idea who owned that building that we moved into before, but my father did the same thing, slipped the note under everybody's door and mm -hmm. gave every tenant like the opportunity to buy in. Yeah. And so each person, and it was one family, there was one family who had generations of of themselves living in an apartment in a big apartment. And like a couple of years ago, when the, the, the grandmother that was on the lease passed, they had no stake mm -hmm. in the apartment. Yeah. It, you know, like it's like, and it's like a multi-million dollar apartment now, right. you know, and they had no stake and the family just had to, wow, just had to leave. Yeah. But yeah. you know, that happened so much. Um, when I was at, at TED, the TED conference, I met Majorca um, Connor. Do you guys know her? She's a urban revitalization like speaker expert, and she did this. She wrote a book about how you don't have to move from your way. I want to get the right name of it. Reclaiming your community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. And that's mm -hmm. always been my take on it. And um, I'm, and her name is Majora Carter. I'm sorry, Majora Carter. And um, she was actually one of the first people to ever do a TED talk. She did it in 2006. So certainly one of the first black people. I think might have been the first black person. But anyway, she she has that wonderful book. And I think that like to what you were saying, um, Zainab, it's about what your father did. And it's a lot of what she does in the South Bronx. Um, you know, with her family's building and their home and all that kind of stuff. And she's trying to get us to like kind of, you know, um, plant stakes into our community. I've never left. Um, and and um, I actually was going to buy a brownstone in early 2000s. Um, but I, I was forced with a, a real kind of um, decision to make. I, I hated my job. I wanted to change careers and so it was either buy a brownstone and stay on my gig or invest in myself mm -hmm. and quit my job and try and do something new. And mm -hmm. so I, I took that one and because I used to be an advertising executive mm -hmm. and I didn't want to do that anymore. And I wanted to become what I am actually am today. Mm -hmm. um, and so it worked out nice, but I didn't buy the brownstone. But you know, I mean, that was one of those tough decisions that I had to make. I don't regret it at all because I make good enough money and I'm going to buy something. And so I'll have something for the pass down to generations to come after me. But, yeah, it was a tough decision. That article, though, it really shows like the power and like banding together. I think that sometimes our fear is that like if we speak up or if we do something, then the consequence will be worse. But look at what happens when you you know, yeah. work together. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I keep telling these people, you know, in my building, they still packages all the time. I put one note, one uh, letter up. I'm going to start slipping it under the door now after yeah. reading that, because if we became a community in the building, they wouldn't steal the packages, yeah. you know, and that's, yeah. the thing. I think the problem is we have a lot of college kids that 
you know, they live in for like a short period of time. So they don't have mm-hmm. any investment yep. in the building or in the neighborhood. But it's taught me so that article taught me so much. And then you saying that Zainab is, you know, yeah, yeah we've got to reinvest in our own neighborhoods. And what you just said, Bevy, about like, you can live here. It can be a really great neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You don't have to leave. And this And also this brings me to your memoir, Revelations, <laughs> Lessons from a Mother, Auntie, Bestie. Mm-hmm. What is a revelation? <laughs> a revelation is just, it really started because, um, well, <laughs> I've had many iterations of revelations, um, but the first one was really because I was cast for a pilot on Bravo called Fashionality. It was a, fan, a, a panel conversation about fashion, and there was a lot of big personalities. And at the time, I wasn't as boisterous on TV because I didn't want to be labeled the loud black woman. So I'm on this panel with a lot of very boisterous people, and I'm being very muted. And Andy Cohen was like, you know, you're not, you know what? I think we're going to take you out the panel and we're going to give you your own segment and you can kind of do man on the street interviews and we'll call it Bevelations. And I was like, I love that. So that was like many, many moons ago. And then when I got my radio show, I knew I wanted to call it Bevelations. And in that context, Bevelations was about me interviewing people, celebrities primarily, and getting them to say things that they weren't saying to other people and not anything salacious. It could be just, it could just be heartfelt. Like I'll give you a prime example. I interviewed Kevin Hart when he was on a press junket and he's so media trained that he was just going through his spiel, right? And I let him finish. And then I asked him, what did he learn from the failure of soul food? And he was, and it just stopped him. Nice. And we had a real conversation after that. And yes. that was a revelation. I love oh it. This is the thing. This is when I read your book, when I read your memoir, I love it the way it's written. First of all, I Thank feel you. like I am talking to a bestie yeah. as I'm reading it. It's so much. I caught myself laughing last night. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh. And I've, I've never done that, actually, when I'm reading yeah. it. And I actually caught myself and I feel like I'm talking to you. That's why I really enjoy it. But it's also what you just mentioned. And I know, Joyelle, you're hearing that, too, about, you know, the loud uh, oh, yeah. black woman or the, you know, the sort of how they want to put us in a box. And you really you speak to that in your in your book. Do you want to, yeah. you know, that authenticity is yes. important. Yeah, authenticity is so important. And and we also have to keep checking ourselves to make sure that our most authentic self is showing up, right? Because we're not we're not a monolith, right? We're mm-hmm. not just one per one thing, right? So at times, yeah, can I be very outspoken and can I be very like you <laughs> and uh, what? You know, <laughs> all those moments, right? But then I can also be a very like we just sat here and had a conversation about gentrification and revitalization and we can have that too and so we don't want to speak and we don't want to play on one note because one note is not authentic but the world will have us in a box and then if we're successful being in that box we'll keep ourselves in that box and then what does it do to our spirits to not be able to show up who we fully are. Like you hear those stories all the time. Like, you know, like 
Hattie McDaniels was like, you know, played maids, but in our home, she was a wonderful hostess who knew how to be grand and all these things. But she was only able to fire on one cylinder in her professional life. Well, I feel like Hattie McDaniels did that all those decades ago so that now we don't have to do that. Now we can show up in these spaces in our professional ways and just kind of be the, the, you know, the educated people that we are, but we can also be tied very closely and connected to our cultures as well. And um, that's for me, that's authenticity, you know, showing up as I truly am. So I'm Big Ben from, from Uptown and I'm also Beverly Smith World Traveler. And I can, and, and I can be those things. But what yeah. you're not going to do is have me be, you know, <laughs> honey child, boo-boo cat all day long. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And negate the other part of me. No, you don't want to be typecast. Them. And that's yeah. the whole thing in our industry is like people typecasting someone and not having to be able to be all the things that you can be. I'm like, I was in marching band as right. a nerd in high school. And right. people are surprised when I say that because they're like, but you're black. And I'm like, well, black people play the flute. Yeah, like, we had a whole about? movie called Drumline. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> but right. also, it's not just in our industry, it's in life. Like, angry mm-hmm. black woman doesn't come from Hollywood. That com- that's, that's just racism. That's yeah. just tried and true racism. And we are the only group of people that have to stipulate, I am more than what you are trying to make me. That's exactly. not even a conversation. I ain't never talked to my mother or my sister and said, you know, I'm also a nerd, right? Like, I ain't never right. had to say that to another black person. Right. But it seems like to in white spaces, you have to force them. And I think nowadays we are more comfortable because we like, you know what? We rather give up everything we have than than reduce us or to stay reduced to what you make us, you know. Um, And I think for a very long time, we didn't have that freedom. Yeah, you know, because we didn't have, we the, didn't have the internet. We didn't have, like, we, really, we didn't have the freedom. We were trying to keep our, and and it makes sense because if you come from a place of having nothing or being deprived for so long, when you do get something, you try not to rock the boat. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like this is like a this is this is always a white cut. That's what that's that's what I hate and love about this, right? Because Marina, the majority of your listeners are probably women of color, right? And so we all get this conversation, probably listening to Bevy and Joyelle and you and me like, yes, yes. But the people who really need to hear this, the people who need to watch 12 Years a Slave, the people who need to all the educate, the people who they making uh, women of the movement, the ABC show for that, that's white people. We don't need that. We right. know the Emmett Till story. We know it. We live it every day. Yeah. We don't need it. Y'all need it. So why? You, you, but you know what, though? And, and, and that's why for me, it's so important. <laughs> They never look shocked at herself. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. I love that you went off. Um, But I do that on my radio show. I talk about very uncomfortable issues. And my my radio show is very, very white because it's um, on Andy Cohen's um, Mm, channel. Mm -hmm. And so it's a bunch of women that love the housewives. And let me tell you. They don't love, I don't think, primarily the Atlanta and Potomac. Potomac. They love them White Housewives. And so it's a lot of those kind of women that listen. And I've had many say that they learn so much, but I'm never doing it in that Black teachable moment thing. Mm -hmm. I just say it like it is, the way I see it. And a lot of times they just absorb it. 
But what's really interesting is that when the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing happened, obviously we were all very emotional. And I said on my show the next day, that Monday, I said, I don't want to have a segregated show, but I'm going to ask if you are white and you call in, please call in in a very gentle way, because this is a black family issue. (laughs) And so, like, don't come on here with your hysteria about you're afraid now and the <laughs> violence and you know what I mean? Cause I didn't want to hear all of that because y'all weren't calling in and talking about y'all was afraid and the violence when the Capitol six insurrection happened. I mean, the mm-hmm. January six Capitol insurrection happened. That's right. And, and that was a lot more than a smack baby. People mm-hmm. died and people tried to burn down the Capitol and people tried to hang folks in, with a noose. So, um, yeah, yeah. But we're not going to do a call up on, on my radio show talking about, oh, my God, and it was so... <laughs> and what about the children seeing that? Right. What about the damn children seeing that? Yeah, he could have killed him. <laughs> also, there's so much validation in us being angry. Every day I hear how Black women are treated the worst, have it the worst found attractive belief. You know, I hear mm. all of these conceptions about black women. And so if if I if I were an outsider and I hear those things, I would say, wow, well that person has I would be angry too. Yeah. I'm just gonna say, well, you know, I, I really literally do not buy into any of those kind of tropes at all. I don't even mm-hmm. allow them to even enter into my space. Um because but one, I was not raised that way. Like I was raised by a very confident, um, really beautiful and amazing mother. And she never talked about being dark skinned, having short hair, not having the biggest, but she never talked about any of that. She only talked about why she was a, the baddest chicken on the block. You know what I mean? Like my mother really loves herself to this day. She's 94. And she still, you know, shows up and shows out, you know. And so I think it's a lot to do with um, we have to teach our girls about real self-love and real self-esteem. It doesn't come from a a slogan. And it really does come from being in the home with someone who loves and appreciates who they are and makes no excuses for who they are. I love it. And, you know, what you're saying also reminds me of of the moment in your book when you talk about like younger generation versus mm-hmm. older generation, and you know, cause that you do hear a lot of like, you know, um, you know, as a darker black woman, like now you hear that and it's, it's become a conversation. Whereas you said this was never, you just, it, it wasn't something you had to act on. You just kind of knew in your house from your mother. It was. Yeah. But colorism like, has existed forever, but my mm-hmm. mom just never bought into it. I, I also like the chapter of your book about, Look, I'm doing my Barbara Walters voice. Sorry. <laughs> yes, you are. I have to stop myself because I, I just, I'm just so happy you're here. So it's a, a little bit of nerves. So I have to stop myself from doing that. But there's a, the, it gets better later. It gets greater later, which it is gets my number greater one mantra. I love yes. that because I am also, this really resonates with me because I think I'm the elder of the two, you know, Joyelle mm-hmm. and, and Zainab. And I know I don't look, you know, I, I have that one meme going around. It's um, I'm a lot older than you look. Uh, black, you know, black girl magic. But I you am could be 16. You could be 16. You could be 60. We don't know. Right. And so a lot of times, though, you know, I do feel it. 
I am at that age where I do see How that. How old are you? <clears throat> what? <laughs> I'm 51. I'm 51 years old. That's the thing. That's the thing. We got to start talking about it because the more we're shy and like a little like, oh, well, it doesn't help. You're right. Because that teaches our girls to fear a natural thing, which is aging. That's right. And instead, we should be teaching them how to age gracefully so that they can look like you when they're 51 years old, you know what I mean? So we need to, you know, so we got to get into that habit. My mother never hit her age. So I've never had an issue with aging. My mom was 38 when I was born, 1966. So you know how crazy that was in 1966. Now women have babies all the time at 38. But back then my mother was like, you know, really, really old for that. And most of my friends, parents and school were only maybe anywhere from 16 to 20 years older than them. My parents were 38 and 41 years older than I am, you know? And so because my mom never hit her age, because she always looked good, um, because I always saw her going through life and age never being a factor to her, that's the reason why I've also been able to live like that. And so that chapter, it gets greater later, really does pay homage to the beauty of black women And to our, you know, to my mother who walks through life just as she is and knowing that age is nothing to fear is something to embrace. We got to get to that. But yeah, Yeah. I have to get to that. Oh, go ahead, Joelle. Oh, no, I was just going to say I talk about that all the time and how it's like I just turned 40 and no women women don't discuss of how it does get better as you get older. Because I remember once I turned 30, I was like, oh, I was like unlocking a key of confidence and now in 40 is like zero fucks given and not worried about my, you know, taking up space in a room and using my voice in situations it took 40 years <laughs> to get to that point. But I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't want to be in my twenties again. You couldn't pay me to be in my twenties again yeah. because the beauty of it getting older. So I love that. It, gr- it gets greater later. Put it that gets on greater later. Oh no, it's already on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It gets great. It's, it's on a tote bag. It's already Open trademarked. It's already <laughs> trademarked. Yes. All the <laughs> and you do say this industry has an obsession with youth. So I guess that is why it feeds into that fear of me even saying, you know, like, you know, because I'm always worried in my, I'm not yet where I want to be. And right. I do feel like some of them do you know, these conversations they have in these rooms. And, I, and I've and i heard them when they try to pitch shows, they're pitching, they're thinking of the, the, the younger generation, the 20-year-olds. Yeah. Like there's a show that I'm pitching right now. It's an animation. And it went from this really great story to how do we make this about 20-year-olds? Yeah. And I was like, you just lost me. You lost me, in a sense. Right. Not that it can't be about 20-year-olds, but... Why? The the story was not about that. So um, I really love this chapter in your book. It really spoke to me. It made me feel like, you know what? It's never too late. You know, never. like even you talking about like investing in yourself. Like I've always sort of lately I've had some regrets about not owning. But you are so right. Like I was investing in myself and mm-hmm. now it's time to just everything has its place in, in your own life. Yeah. 
And you also talk about not comparing yourself to other people's mm, people. success. Can you speak more to that to you? Well, it's just that for what? You know what I mean? <laughs> like your journey is your journey. Theirs is theirs. And so it really doesn't get us anywhere except into a hole of depression. We also don't know what it took for people to get to where they are. We also need to start focusing on the here and now. It's all about what's going on in the present, right? Like, so for me, I don't look at what other people have going on because I'm running my own race. I ain't got time to look to the side of me and I don't have time to look in the back of me. And I'm not even looking in front. I'm just really pacing myself and running my race and trying to get to the destination that I'm, I, I have in my mind's eye, also knowing that that destination is subject to change because I might be halfway down the damn road and decide, mm, not so much. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to veer to the left. I'm going to veer to the right. Yeah. But when you're comparing yourself to others, you're so caught up in their shit that you're not even focused on yours, okay? And we got to stop that. That's the reason why social media is the gift and the curse. Because we can look and we can see everyone else having all these accolades. As a matter of fact, in my TED Talk, I talk about the fact that, you know, I had to start doing this like little ritual where I would look and see people doing things. Not that I wanted. Now, here's the gotcha, gotcha. Have y'all ever looked at somebody doing something that maybe you don't even want to do? But you're like, well, why wasn't I even asked? Yes. Yeah. Dumb <laughs> shit out. Yes, yes, it is. Absolutely right. That's ridiculous. You don't even want it. You just wanted to be invited. Just so you could say no, or just so maybe you could do something that you didn't really want to do, but you just wanted to be invited. So we have to, you know, I have a little ritual that I do to check myself on that kind of thing because I'm moving in different spaces. And so like when, when the Met Gala was going on and everybody was like, oh my God, you should have done red carpet. I was like, well, I don't want to do red carpet. That's a young woman's game. That's a hard, that's a hard job. You're in the hills all night. You're jockeying for interviews. You got your trust up in a damn gown. You're getting sound bites. You're not even really getting interviews. And like, what's it all for? Like, mm. I don't want to do that work. That's some beautiful young vivacious woman who is looking to, you know, be a part of fashion and, and wants to be anointed that bitch. Let her do it. <laughs> I've done my time. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. You know, you also have to understand that, um, you know, for you, like even for you, Marina, for all you guys that are, are in the business, and even if you're not in the business, to all the listeners, you got to make way for other folks. It's just like they always talk about, like with, uh, with the law of attraction, all that kind of things. You got to get rid of some stuff so you can have new stuff come in. So if I'm still holding on to being a fashion commentator, if I'm still holding on to being a pop culture TV host, then I'm not focusing my energies on acting at, at, at launching my, my um, uh, motivational speaking business. I'm not moving on to the next. So I can't hold on to that old stuff because that makes me stagnant. Yes, I can do it incredibly well. Yes, I can be paid well for it, but I don't want to do it anymore. I'm moving on. And that's something that that. we all need to start doing. Move on, y'all. If you've been doing (laughs) something the same damn way for a long time, 
maybe it's to move on, shift. I love it. God, I can speak to you forever. I'm going to try to get to this last topic really fast because I know you have to go. This is the fastest I've ever done a show and it's so easy with you. But I, I feel like, you know, I usually do, like I told you, like two hours or so. I, w- I want to just talk to you so much. Like, um, I want to keep you in my pocket. My bestie. Your bestie. Um, but I, I, I guess it's kind of important to mention... Roe versus Wade right now, mm. right? And Joyelle has a great special which addresses this. Um, your quote that you wrote on Instagram, Bevy, before I get to Joyelle, you wrote, hashtag, keep your bans off my body. It's disgraceful yeah. that the Supreme Court would want to turn back the hands of time where women who don't want children at all or at a certain time in life will be forced to try to terminate a pregnancy illegally. Incredibly dangerous, slash life-threatening or give birth to an unwanted child. You say, I got pregnant as a teen and who would I be if I had been forced to keep the child? We can't romanticize the idea of teen mothers who, against all the odds, become wonderful mothers and raise healthy, successful children. And then and then, please point out that I also say, of course that exists, but that's not, it's, that's against the odds. Yes. That's not that's not the majority of people's stories. Yeah. Of course it can be done. I got plenty of friends who had kids at 16. I got four friends who had kids at like before they were 18 years old who do incredibly well. But I also have about another 50 friends that are mired in poverty to this day. And we're in our 50s. Yeah. And that's the point. Poverty. You just want to keep people in poverty. (laughs) Well, they also want to increase their their numbers, because what did they yeah, say? What was that number? Um, th- remember the quote that he had um, in the brief? It was um, domestic born children. It was something like it was like something really, really sinister. It was some. It was language out of like the Handmaid's Tale, and they were yeah. de- de- basically domestic supply of children. Yeah, that's, uh-huh. I think that's what it was, and that's because they really do want to have more white children. Because we already know that the white population's numbers are dwindling and they don't like the browning of America. That's what this is really all about. Who just announced that they are now banning Plan B, the Plan B pill? Um, Tennessee, right? I'm about to say, I think that was announced today. Oh, yeah. wow. That if you like, and if you take, if you get it mailed or something, it's like a $50,000 fine, they're going to find you. So, what is that saying? Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Because Joyelle talks about it in her special. Can you speak to that, Joyelle? Because I really like the fact that you were one of the few comedians that I, I, I'm sure, like I've said this before, I'm sure there are comedians that have, but I don't remember anyone touching on it the way you do in your act. Uh, Just, well, having my abortion when I was a teenager as well, but I was in college and I wanted to finish college. I wanted to you know, have more from life. And luckily my mother um, worked as a nurse. She met my father. Uh, she was his nurse at the at an abortion clinic. So I never had an issue with um, abortion. My mother never, like from a young age, she was like, there's nothing wrong with this. If you ever get pregnant, let me know. And I was able to go to my mother and tell her. So I know that that's a privilege that most women do not have. You know, they, they have a secret, you know, it's like, women whispering, calling a Planned Parenthood, trying to figure out how to do this, teenagers. So, you know, I toured the country with the Abortion Access Front and 
I'm going to West Virginia in June to do um, a show for one of their clinics out there because those are the areas, the Tennessee's, the Texas, Oklahoma wants to make themselves one of the most pro-life states. And it's like, okay, it's just going to be really dire for all the women to be in poverty, but also it's going to kill women. That's, that's the part that hurts me because my mother became a nurse in 1973. That's when Roe versus Wade was passed. She said women were still coming into the hospital in the late seventies into the eighties because they had drank some bleach or used a hanger, you know, even after Roe passed, you know, so it's like, we're going to still have these abortions and we need to say the word abortion. That's, that's very important to me because there's so much shame around that word and there's, it's nothing to be ashamed about. Um, from the dawn of time, women have been figuring out how to uh, abort pregnancies. Yes. <laughs> From the dawn of time. So did you know Frank Sinatra? Did you know Frank Sinatra's mother was an abortionist in the nineteen twenties? She was in Hoboken giving out abortions, Shadow. What in Jersey? Yeah, in Jersey, honey. Frank Sinatra's yeah, my, mama. My father was in Jersey, and he told me this one story because they were they were doing it in Newark, New Jersey, and my mother said the. Um, the protesters would try it, but they wasn't trying to come to Newark. Like anyway, so she said, uh, he said try, try and show show up with a, a fetus in a damn pickle jar or something, and yeah. and harass people in Newark. Oh, you gonna get your ass beat? It's the same thing with the Peter people. Yeah, they they tried they tried it, but she was like it didn't success. But my favorite story he said one Friday, this woman came from Connecticut in a fur coat with her fifteen year old daughter, and she was like, "You have to do an abortion. My husband's out of town." And he was like, well, it's six o'clock, we're closed. And she was like, no, you have to do this. And she pulled out a $1,000 bill. And my father had never seen a $1,000 bill before. And this was like 1981 or whatever. I still ain't never like, seen one. Right, I've never seen a $1,000 bill before either. And he was like, well, open up room two. But this was a conservative woman, a conservative woman who came down to New Jersey because she heard about my dad. And yeah, so we're going to need him. We're going to need him. I just hope... Women stay safe, you know, and slide into my DMs if you need me to mail you something. Okay, because look, but yeah, no, it's it's um, Governor signs bill criminalizing criminalizing mail-in abortion drugs. Mm-hmm. That just happened, and that's in Tennessee. And um, this is a full-on assault. Absolutely. And we need all hands on deck. And you know, it's so interesting because you know, as Black people, we do tend to be very religious. Mm-hmm. And so I have heard from a lot of people saying, well, I just don't know. And I'm like, what don't you know? <laughs> okay, what don't you know? What are you talking about? Well, I just feel like you give them up for adoption. Okay, and then what happens to all the children that are currently in the system waiting to be adopted? Of which they're yeah. most primarily black and brown children that are not wanted. Not being especially being after adopted. and after the pandemic. Hello. Right. A lot. And not to mention having a baby. You want me to have a baby? Right. What is Just that so you can adopt body? them? <laughs> yeah. But it's also the cost? biggest racket. It's also the biggest racket because, you know, like as Bevy said, it's to save the white population, right? right? Yeah. But it's really like killing so many birds with one stone because it will also affect us because the brown and black people are it's the poverty right it's, it's the poverty like the, the, but also white women can't win this war without us so they have mm. to co-opt us into it because right. they can't get anything done without us so yeah. it's just like you know like it's it really is just a whole racket yeah unfortunately yeah 
where either side of it, we lose. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, this is, and it's all about voting too, right? I I mean, they're they're messing with our vote. Local, local votes and local. getting involved. Like I said, the community, you have to get out there and vote. The Democrats have to get their messaging right on this. This is their opportunity right here because we see what's going to happen in the midterm elections. They, they keep saying Republicans, but this leak was very important and, and useful and good timing. Yeah, um, We do have to get out. Uh, this has been an amazing Bevy, I would love for you to come back to the show if you ever have time. I know you're a busy, busy woman. And, and, and as I told you, not working a lot. But wait, I do have to plug my TED Talk that comes out on May 20th. I want everyone to oh, go. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, Bevy, thank you so much. I live a revelation. Okay, so my TED Talk comes out on May 20th. It's titled, It Gets Greater Later. I got a standing ovation, a rousing standing ovation. And I went there and I spoke on behalf of all of us, Black women who have been othered, and I showed up as my most authentic self, and I shut it down. And I looked into the faces of all those tech billionaires and all those other folks that don't look like us. And, and, you know, and I really stood there solid on my feet in my six-inch Louboutins. (laughs) And I told them folks that I have nothing to prove to you. And it felt really good to do that. And so I did that for us, us and we. So speaking of us, with friends like us, you have built-in family. You got your mama, you got your sister, you got your daddy, you got your brother, you got aunties and uncles, but friends like us, because we create family. That's what we do when you got friends like us. Yes! <laughs> yes! Zainab? Um, June 4th, they can actually, June 4th, yeah, June 4th, um, they can uh, come see me at, in Seattle, Washington. I'm doing one nighter in Seattle. So come to the show because I don't get to Seattle often, you guys. Um, and people always come to my shows from friends like us, Marina. So it's it's always nice. Yeah, people come to my shows from friends yes. like us. Um, and so that's June 4th. You can get the tickets from my website, which is Zainab Johnson, Z-A-I-N-A-B Johnson. And every social media platform is Zainab Johnson. Except for TikTok, it is the Zainab Johnson. Thanks for having me, Marina. Oh, we're friends. It's such a pleasure to meet you, uh, Bevy. Always great to see you. Okay, with friends like us, um, you will get revelation after revelation after revelation. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yes, May 20th is a big day for me as well. Um, I... I was on the episode of the Kelly Clarkson show that I booked. Oh the my gosh. Awards. So it's my first sit down talk show interview. Um, so that's coming out on May 20th. And also the first, the second season of Sam J's show pause on HBO that I wrote on is coming out May 20th as well. So we got a big black ass day for May 20th. Yes. So uh, with friends like us, uh, we donate to abortion funds. So I want everyone yes. um, to look up an abortion fund. The National Network of Abortion Funds is the huge one, all encompassing. But each state has their own abortion funds, and that's going to help a woman, you know, get to another state, get childcare, transportation, things like that. So Planned Parenthood is great, but with friends like us, we donate to abortion funds. Yes, oh, and we both oh, donate to local abortion funds, like you said. Yes. Please. Planned Parenthood has a lot of money, y'all. They, got all they the don't money. need they don't need our little 
twenty dollars. Let's give it to the local ones. Shout out to Planned Parenthood. I work with them. I love them. But I, I'm very clear, Joel, that we need local, local yes. infused infusion. Yes. It's like Tennessee, please. They have them in Tennessee, yes. Texas, yeah. Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes, Marina Franklin here. It has been truly an honor to have all of you on today. It it, it feeds me every time I do this podcast. Um, just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you don't have to be afraid to say your age. You don't have to be afraid to be authentic because by being authentic, you can uh, change people's lives and turn it around. Check, Check it out. out.